What's it like to play soccer in Poland and Croatia? Most players from New England can only imagine, but that was reality for many years for Amos Shapiro-Thompson. That topic leads to the second episode of the New England Soccer Journal podcast, and Amos has some pretty amazing stories to tell from his time overseas. As a midfielder from Worthington, Massachusetts, he's now back at Boston College, and also at previous stops at Milton Academy and the New England Revolution Academy. Our other guest this week is John Moody, who runs BlackRock FC, previously steered Berkshire into becoming arguably the country's top prep school soccer program. We delved into the 10-month academy's model, which is in the spotlight as the development academy folds and people wonder what comes next. The hook for them, they do their version a little bit differently with residential academies at Northwood and High Mowing. We also have our Around the Pitch segment like always, but enough waiting. I'm your host, Jonathan Siegel, and this is the New England Soccer Journal podcast. Hey, everybody. We are here with Boston College freshman midfielder, Amos Shapiro-Thompson, uh, a kid who has had a pretty unique journey throughout the soccer world from Worthington, Massachusetts, back home, seeming to really enjoy his football at the moment. Thanks for coming on, Amos. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Um, always here for it. I loved uh, that we got to check in and do a few articles over my whole career, be it from Milton back four years ago, all the way back to chronicling my time in Europe and coming back home. So pleasure to be on that and appreciate it. Definitely, definitely. Well, we're, we're connecting one day after it was made public that you were able to get a, a pretty a pretty special award at BC, um, a, a freshman male scholar athlete of the year, not just soccer team related, all of BC athletics. What's the significance? Why does that mean so much to you? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it feels like, I mean, I'm super honored. I'm super grateful. It feels like some ways the culmination of a long path of trying to balance academics and soccer my whole life um, with a lot of different things. There's been a lot of tension between those things. It's not necessarily always conducive, all this tough academics um, to a professional career or playing at the top level, but it's always something that I've really valued trying to balance them. Um, and it hasn't always been easy. So getting that kind of recognition means, yeah, it means a lot. So just wanted to start to place people in some context for your past too. Uh, you know it better than I do, but I'll give it my best shot. You came onto the scene, I think a little more prominently when you were in the Revolution Academy system as a youngster, it was at Milton Academy for a while. We were able to win a, a Class A championship there with Coach Kane on a really special team that I know you still cherish those memories really dearly. You're able to go overseas, um, have two stops at Legia Warsaw, Dinamo Zagreb, but wanted to start with that decision to go overseas at all. That's not something very common around here, especially at clubs of those profile. Why do that in the first place? Why'd you take that leap? Yeah, for me, I mean, definitely, as you said, I'm from a small town in Western Mass, so really rural. Um, my parents really don't have any background in soccer. So it, it had always been definitely driven by me. Um, and my path was completely unorthodox. But as far as the, the European stuff, it really all came up when I was around 14. And I actually just did a summer camp. Um, which Dinamo Scouts happened to be watching. It was kind of like a Dinamo Zagreb slash be ahead of the game um, down in Concord, Mass. Um, and basically the Dinamo Scouts really, really liked me. And there was this guy, Ivan Kepsia, Kepsia, who was at the time the academy assistant director, a really young guy who had studied in California, had experience with the U.S. Um, school system, spoke perfect English, and he was just like this incredibly appealing guy. And he really told me that they really liked me and saw that I might be able to fit in over there. Um, so kind of just quickly out of that, it suddenly burst into the option of being able to go. I was 14 for the summer and I decided like this two week opportunity, like why not? It took some serious convincing of my parents who felt like they were sending me off to <laughs> the abyss, like who knows where he's going to go. 
um, and if he'll ever come back. But <laughs> I went, and it was just like a complete, complete culture shock and a complete soccer shock, shock as far as the level. Um, and it really was really what I was looking for as far as this high level that I'd been kind of seeking and was totally not what I was experiencing in the U.S. So it really all came back to that camp and just like this crazy bit of luck and meeting Ivan Kepsha, who we can talk about later, but he'll end up bringing me to Poland too. So yeah. that's how it started. It sounds like that really kind of whetted your appetite and maybe sparked an interest to say, hey, like this is something that I don't want to just do as a one-time thing. I, I'm tempted and kind of allured by this. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, uh, I got that kind of two-week trial period, and I just loved it, and they loved me, and I felt immediately like, this is where I have to develop. Um, even at that age, I'd been to some national trainings, camps in California, in Florida, really in with some of the top guys in the country, and I even felt like, weirdly, Dinamo actually had a higher level of training as far as development. Like, I had really never experienced that much focus, precision, um, attention to detail as far as the technical side of the game and I was just like man like it's no it's no wonder they produce Luka Modric like I have to try to be here but it would also became you know this whole problem as not having a European passport so um, I couldn't really start until I was 18 as far as living full-time there so it became a thing where every school break every summer break I would try to escape over there and go train um, and we kept in really good contact as far as a developmental plan for me with this guy Ivan Kepsha and so I was kind of there checking in every six months um, for a month of training. So it's a wonderful way to kind of get that extra training and come back. Um, but I was always super devastated that I couldn't be there full time. So yeah, when you're ultimately able to go full time, though, um, what was that conversation like with family? Slash, was it something where you were really chomping at the bit to to make that official? Because I know there's that traditional pathway that we see American kids go through, where they're in a club system, they're in an academy environment, and then it progresses to college, and there's these different steps along the way but you go in a direction that's variant different than we normally see. So why make that ultimate official jump? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was a combination of just this soccer ambition, which I felt like I wasn't in a place um, that was where I was going to be really able to realize that top, top level of training, um, which was a combination of being at Milton and being at the revs. And there was this kind of interesting tension between existing at this like really difficult and academically demanding boarding school. I had some trouble getting to training. I had all these conflicts all the time. So I was just like so excited to take the chance to really go for it finally. Um, but as far as family, yeah, it was a huge decision. But honestly, my parents have been incredibly supportive. They've been pretty relaxed about it. And they've just always said like, you have to try to make your own decisions and be happy with them. So part of my completely unorthodox path has come from me having the freedom to choose it and my parents totally supporting it. So it was really hard when I went. Um, finally, when I actually went, I had, I had decided I had booked the plane ticket, decided to go online for my senior year, and I'd broken my leg terribly, my fibula, <laughs> straight through a week before I was heading to preseason camp with Dinamo. So that was really hard. I ended up recovering for like three months during the fall. And then once I recovered, I went there and I was just living full time there in the dorm and just I gave it a real good shot so you say that so casually um, but obviously it's not something quite so casual but one, one part I wanted to focus on too was initial jump and time over there in the first place what was that like not as much as a soccer player but as a as a person as an individual because we kind of see that from afar and think oh my god what an opportunity that that's so amazing but it's not that simple it's not that black and white and I know we've talked about this some before but 
how so? How is that maybe a little bit more uh, multi-layered than people realize from afar? Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, it's, it's really true. It's really easy to look back in a totally positive way on it because it certainly helped me along to where I am now. And I'm like incredibly happy. Like I have zero regrets as far as my path. But at the time, it was, it was really difficult, um, super lonely and stressful. I'm a celiac. I'm gluten-free. Should have seen me trying to figure out the Croatian supermarkets. But no, it was really difficult. I mean, you're living in this kind of cramped dorm space with 40 other Croatian, Bosnian, Serbian lads who maybe spoke English, but certainly were not welcoming to me. And so I was really alone. It was really this time where I felt like I was kind of growing this like mental fortitude as far as like being able to be alone and see the light at the end of the tunnel, regardless of it being really lonely and pretty depressed and very hard. I mean, I think I would go to training and I would just hold on to that every day, like every morning I'm going to training, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to try to improve. But you come back in the afternoon and, you know, it, I was doing my online school, I was really missing friends and family, I was really, really alone. I really didn't go out of the my little room much, I was just doing schoolwork and training. So it was like a certain type of lifestyle that was really hard and I was really young. But as I kind of stayed there longer, and I think the boys realized that I was uh, here to stay. I think they ended up accepting me a little more because at first I felt like I had come in and they were kind of feeling like I was there to take their job and they were not interested. Yeah. As you mentioned that at the end, was it, was it an American thing? Was it a, a thing of these, these are kids who are clinging onto this potentially as a real life opportunity. And I, I don't want to paint it with a broad brush, meaning that applies to everyone. Everyone has their own life situations, of course, but we talk and or rather we hear about the intensity and how important these football opportunities are for players compared to what we traditionally see for an American player and, and what they're trying to accomplish. A hundred percent. Like you, you hit that perfectly. I mean, you have young kids, 16, 17, 18 there who are possibly even earning money, supporting their family, um, who certainly see it as who have like long dropped school usually. I um, mean, certainly see it as they're kind of like, that's their path. And if it works, you know, that is, that is all they have. So I think there's, a certain kind of cutthroat and competitiveness that is impossible to have in the U.S. Um, and certainly I hadn't experienced um, as far as just like a family network and school opportunities. Being there always in the background as a fallback, I think when kids don't have that fallback, I think, of course, it breeds a, a whole new type of focus and culture as far as how competitive it can be. Definitely, definitely. And just want to touch on as well, I mean, as much as there's a social, there's there's the, the kind of... Uh, world education aspect that comes with it. There's also the soccer side of things where, where you're able to get an, an a immersive experience. What was the biggest adjustment that you noticed, whether that was playing style, physically, tactically, a role you're being asked to? Um, for me, I was really fortunate to have this coach, Ivan Prelitz, who is now, he went on to a very young coach who had um, ended his career because of a kind of horrific injury, but he had been a top player in the kind of Luka Modric generation. And he really took a liking to me, spoke perfect English and was really helping me out. So, and now he actually coaches Dinamo's second team after a stint working at Legia um, in Poland. Um, and then also uh, in the first division coaching um, Istra in, in Croatia. So this was a guy that has gone on to work at the top level. And I always knew when I met him that he was excellent, but he really, for the first time, stressed the, te- the tactical side of the game with me in a way that I'd never thought about soccer before. Never. Um, I'd never met someone that was willing to like really sit there and analyze it with me in these ways and talk about the mental, the tactical, the focus, the organization, the team. 
And I think in a lot of ways in the U.S., we totally lack that understanding of the game on that kind of like tactical, um, competitive organization, mental level. And the other thing was just like the, the level of technique and precision there was something completely different. I mean, truly like alien to me as far as the repetitions. I mean, you have kids kind of just banging the ball against these cement walls set up on a, gra- on a turf field, just like practicing their weak foot volleying all day. So there was just such focus on technique and consistency that I hadn't experienced. And that was a big adjustment for me. Yeah. You mentioned tactically that that window being maybe kind of the biggest eye opener specifically. How, how so was it? Was it in terms of, I don't know if it's as simple as a, a position on the field or, or understanding the nuance uh, of playing in a, in a, in a diamond midfield and you're a shuttle on the left side and, and what that means defensively and in possession, like how did that enhance your tactical understanding of the game? Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, it was really about him talking to me about being on both sides of the ball as like an attacking midfielder type of player and thinking about, you know, he would always say like, you know, there's only this much time that you're actually on the ball in the game and all these flair attacking players, they think that it's all that. But in the end, what makes you a top player is all you do without the ball, right? So your movement, how connected you are. So I think there was a lot of emphasis on like staying connected with the group and moving together in a way that I hadn't seen before. But to be fair, I also never really got to solidify that knowledge because I didn't appear in competitive games with Dinamo. I was never registered because of the passport thing. And so it was a lot of training, but I never got quite to apply it in the way that I would have wanted to while uh, I was being coached there. Yeah. And the game side of that, I think, presents a kind of ability to branch forward now is you're able to transition as a player over to Legia Warsaw eventually to, to go into Poland. Can you take people into kind of how that opportunity arises in the first place? Because you go from, let's just say, one very, very intense uh, football system into another where we've talked about this before and it's it's something that I think people might not understand about the, the culture that exists behind the fans and, and, and the clubs, but how'd that come up in the first place? Yeah, so it was the same connection, the guy that had seen me when I was 14 and really like taken a liking to me, um, this amazing guy, Ivan Kepsha, and he had taken the technical director job at Legia a few months prior to that winter and he'd always said that, you know, if I wanted to try and give it a shot there, that um, they would take a look at me and see so it was kind of a split second, like, uh, you know, I spent four months in Croatia and it was great, but I felt like I didn't have the support of the people in the club as much. Um, I was pretty happy, but I just, you know, he kind of just sent me a text and said, hey, like, do you want to do you want to give it a shot in Warsaw? And I said, like, yeah, why not? Like just another place to check off, another place to be, another place to learn. And I uh, I just flew there in January when I turned 18 and. Yeah, the rest, uh, you know, it was pretty quick from there on. (laughs) How cold was it when you arrived? Yeah, no, I mean, it was a terrible transition at first. I got to say, like, it was even more depressing than um, Croatia at first. I I arrived and they put me up in this little hostel called uh, Agricola. And once again, it was like, you know, meat and potatoes and coleslaw and gluten-free. I was just trying to figure out how to tell them to not bread the chicken. And it was just very cold and very kind of like the, the city was very big. Warsaw is like this 5 million population city. It seems like so sprawling, sprawling and like hard for me to walk around and figure out where the hell I was. <laughs> um, but eventually, like I really did warm to it. But the first two, three weeks were incredibly tough. It was one of those things where I had been kind of conditioned to be ready for that. But I went to training there was one guy who spoke English, this guy Tsubasa Nishi, 
who was a Japanese player. And Tsubasa would speak to me, kind of tell me when training was the next day, and I would show up. But once I left training, I was alone. Yeah. But were you in, in touch with family back home over FaceTime? Were you Because it's easy for someone to feel homesick a little bit and want to have that connection to, to those yeah. back where they feel comfortable. So, so how did you kind of emerge from that? Maybe it's not a period of isolation, but, but a period of maybe just feeling lost and not having a compass to really root yourself and feel comfortable in. Definitely. I mean, for me, I got to say, like, I, I still probably like FaceTime my mom every day when I'm at college. Like, definitely, I was talking to family all the time on FaceTime. But in some ways, to be honest, I also sheltered them from how much I was struggling because I knew how much they would worry. So I think as far as how difficult it was, they never really probably knew how lonely and hard and like close to giving up I felt at a lot of different points. But I definitely was like in constant, in constant conversation with them, be it like, mom, like, what should I get at the grocery store? Like, what could I cook? You know, like constant communication in that way, like constant support. Like I have the most loving, supportive family ever who really were there for me through it. But of course, in the end, it was me just there at the end of the day alone. So. Yeah, it causes a lot of maturation, of course, for, for any young kid and kind of what they have to learn about themselves and, and how to navigate, not just being a, a soccer player with aspirations, but becoming a young adult, it seems like. No, and for me too, uh, like I mentioned this guy, Tsubasa Nishi, who older, really experienced Japanese player who was in the second team of Legia, which is playing in the third league in Poland. And he was this guy who really, he played in my position. He was the only other foreign player. And he was really kind to me. He really took me under his wing, explained everything. He had been in Poland for six years. He had a Polish girlfriend. He really knew. Um, and then when it came and I actually kind of like signed my schoolboy contract there and registered the technical director, Kepcha, came to me and said that uh, he wasn't sure that if I understood, but I was kind of taking Tsubasa's position because there was only one, there was only space for one non-European player on the roster to play. And so it became this like really, I felt a lot of guilt at first. You know, this was this guy that had taken me along and all of a sudden I kicked him out and he was transferring to Slovakia. So I'll always remember that. There was a lot of, I'm really grateful for these people that paved the way for me and helped me in those really hard moments. So I want to give a shout out to Tsubasa, wherever he is playing now. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned being able to sign with, with, with the second team, being able to finally kind of get that competitive breakthrough. What are some examples that kind of stick out in terms of the opportunities that were coming your way? Because from talking to you before, I know there's been some pretty special clubs you've been able to play against. I'd imagine there was a lot of momentum to finally get that opportunity that you've been waiting for for so long overseas. For me, it was massive. I, we had gone to preseason and I still hadn't signed a contract. It was very up in the air. And we went to a camp in Italy and we played against Juventus. And as you can imagine, like we pull into the training center in Turin and I'm just like, you know, like I feel like I was shaking, like nerves. I just couldn't believe as a kid from Worthington that I might get this opportunity to play against Juventus. And I like, we saw that I think Buffon was there walking around and it was just like, my mind was blown. Like we're going to change in the locker rooms. And I was man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm a fake. Like, I don't know if I'm up to this. And I got my chance in the second half and I just like played the best game of my life. I scored these two unbelievable goals. I don't know how they came to me pretty soon. It was like, you know, the guys really accepted me. The coach really accepted me. And the coach was pushing the club. Like, hey, we got to sign this kid now, you know, now, now, now. So once we got back to Warsaw, I felt like a new understanding of my place at the club and new like possibilities. Like I'd never been able to test myself against the best of the best of the best. And I felt like I was there if I kept pushing. And once I did kind of like sign that, I felt I'm like so proud, you know, like I was, I wish that my family had been there for that moment, you know, cause it felt like a big culmination again, but 
that really felt like this is the moment where it's starting. You know, this is my time to show that I'm I'm here and I'm I deserve it and I'm worth it. And I like really wanted to prove also like all the trust that Kepsha had put in me all along. Like I really felt like this is my chance to give back and like, I want to I want to prove that they were right for trusting me. So, do you feel you needed that moment to kind of feel accepted by the team? Definitely, definitely. I definitely needed. Um, to show the the club that I was serious, the, the players around me that I was serious, that I wasn't going anywhere. You know, you get a lot of these trialists at clubs that stay for two weeks and then disappear. Um, so that's nothing new for them. It doesn't surprise me that they didn't really give a, sh- you know, they didn't care about me for the first two weeks, didn't give me the time of day. But once they found out that, hey, I was here to stay, I was going to sign, I was going to be a part of it. I was scoring these goals. I was playing. Then all of a sudden people were really, they started to speak English. I was like, oh, I thought you guys didn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah take people then into that opportunity where you're able to weigh the decision of of signing and starting a new opportunity again um where did that or what's the details behind that how did that opportunity come to be what was your reckoning slash thought process behind it why would that have made sense or not made sense for you individually as a as an aspiring pro as far as the end of the time in poland it was definitely a pretty tumultuous time as far as what was happening at the club the guy that had originally brought me, Kepsia, who I've mentioned a lot, was had been fired earlier. Um, and then I, they'd hired a new, um, a new first team coaching staff um, led by Ricardo Sapinto for the first team. And all of a sudden, he took a real liking to me. And I was like basically full time in the first team training. I played two friendly games. And I thought I was like very close to breaking through. It seemed to me like I was going to be a star. <laughs> you know you were, like, yeah you were you were convinced my made that it was it was ticket yeah. sealed here you go well, i mean in that spring in that winter i felt like like i felt like I, I was starting to make it i was competing with all these international players these first team players these famous players on the daily and i felt like i could fit in and i felt like i was gonna get the chance i was the youngest guy training there and they loved me and then you know a month later sapinto's fired kepsha's out and i felt very lost. Um, and all of a sudden I had gone from this like young starlet that everyone at the club, all the fans were paying attention to and thought was going to break through to like completely invisible. And I wasn't even playing in the second team anymore. By the end of the time when I had kind of like restated my, and I had gotten back in and I was playing in the second team in games in the third league, but I wasn't with the first team with the new Polish coaching staff. I felt like I was kind of back on where a track, uh, a good track, but considering kind of like the support of the club had kind of been waning a little bit. And the opportunities never really materialized as far as something that I would feel really good about signing, then it was a really like great time to think about a change. Yeah. And you ultimately do make that change, of course, where, um, like I mentioned, you're, you're back here in Massachusetts, charting a new journey here and, and a great ACC program. But that doesn't come out of thin air because we're talking the transition from, from Poland back home. How does that emerge in the first place? I'd always like known I want to go to college. I want to finish my education some way. I definitely felt like in Europe, I was getting a different kind of education that was in some ways more important and priceless than any education you could get as far as like being a citizen of the world and just learning how to be independent and mature. But it came up because Bob Thompson, who's now the head coach, who was the assistant, had actually come to Poland um, and seen me play six months earlier, he'd been friends with Ivan Kepsha and Victor Bejani, who was Kepsha's assistant and the head scout at Legia. So Bob had come over and seen me play and I had a really good game. I think we won like six nil. I had like three assists for the U19s. And so he was really aware of, of the player that I was. And he called to say like, Hey, we have this athletic scholarship. Like, are you, are you interested? And I was like, it was completely out of nowhere. I remember I was in the old town. I was eating dinner with someone and 
I picked up the phone. I was like, I don't know who this is. And man, I was happy to hear from him. And when he really talked it out to me, I was like just starting to become aware of like my emotional response. And I was like, wow, like I'm so excited at the idea that my parents might be able to see me play, that I might be able to come home, that I might have friends around. Um, and I was just like overwhelmed. Like I, I remember being like really emotional that night, feeling like, wow, like this is something that really excites me. Like, I don't exactly know how it will be, but it's something that I might've kind of been like looking for and yearning for that I wasn't even aware of. So. How long were you weighing that decision? Was it a quick one to say, hey, I want to come back to BC? Because I mean, that's not, a, that's not a snap of the fingers thing. So, so what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it, it happened, I think, like in May. So imagine like the season starting in two, three months as far as preseason. And it took me like a, a week to decide, three or four days. And it was like, that was that. And I didn't really tell people at the club because we were still finishing the season through June. I was still playing, but my mind was made up. And I was just like, this is what I got to do, be home and and study and, and try to push this local program forward. I also felt like immense excitement about being part of something local. When you're ultimately able to get into Boston College and you're coming in as a freshman, did you feel pressure by any means in terms of a kid who is coming from this environment overseas and, and had a little bit of a resume to him? Was there some weight on your shoulders perhaps? I wouldn't say I felt pressure. I think I've always felt pressure from myself to try to perform at a really high level. Like wherever I was, I think I felt pressure when I was a kid and I didn't play well. I, I would like cry every single game um, until I was probably like 16. <laughs> so pressure was definitely always self-inflicted. And I think that's kind of driven me to try to keep improving. It's like, I care a lot. I take it really personally if I don't perform, but I don't think I had like particular baggage as far as like the resume. I definitely felt like, it was just all going to help me um, perform once I got to BC. But certainly once I got to BC, it was a big, big change. Sounds more confidence than pressure, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I felt just like, not necessarily confident. I think I was really nervous about the transition, feeling like, had I made the right decision? What was I going to experience? Was I going to be playing? Like, what? how different would the level be? Would it seem silly? Like, would I feel stupid for coming back, having given up that professional life? But I was just excited. Like I was so excited to see my family and come back and play for a school and be around kids my age. I was just like, um, I don't know how confident I was, but I was just like filled with kind of like optimism and, and excitement. And you mentioned changes before, obviously going from a environment of Legia into Boston college is a big change starting with the soccer element specifically. How so? I mean, there's of course the, the pure, I guess you could say schedule calendar aspect where you're playing potentially three games, eight days type of thing. And that I'm sure was a huge adjustment for you. Yeah. I mean, that is insane. Inexplicably terrible for everyone. Yeah. What a change. I mean, the professionalism, it was just a huge shock for me to see people not taking it quite as seriously as I had been. And as people around me had been um, particularly like I had been really conditioned in this, like, in Poland, it was, you know, people were totally professional. This was their life. So it was no longer even in Dinamo where people were very professionally minded, but they were still young. Um, in the first team when I was training, these guys all have families. They're competing on an incredibly high level all the time and they never turn off. So to see the kind of student lifestyle and how different that was, it was a huge shock for me. Like I had trouble adjusting immensely, even trouble on the pitch, I felt like I wasn't on the same wavelength as a lot of guys um, training. Um, and the, the things that were asked of me were different than they were asked in Poland as far as level and focus and style. So big change soccer-wise, definitely. You're able to find success though. So it's not, I, I don't want to paint things through a negative lens and I don't think you are either by any means, 
but it sounds like there's just an adjustment. So, so what was ultimately that maybe kind of experience as you reflect back upon it that freshman year and, and as you're trying to continue to progress through your, your pathway? Yeah, I mean, in the end, I think the transition was, was hard at first, but in the end, it ended up being pretty seamless, like having people around. I just, all of a sudden, I felt like, whoa, like, I can really be a part of this and be an important part of this. People are going to rely on me to perform. And I didn't necessarily feel that all the time in Poland. I didn't feel like the importance of my own contribution. That, like, really drove me to try to, to, try to do all I could for the team and, like, to try to play well individually, um, to try to drive the team forward. I felt like I was part of something that I cared about. Like I, I loved seeing, you know, like my family over in the stands. I hadn't seen that in three or four years. Friends of mine from high school that I won the Milton Nepsack with, we had like 15 of them at the BU game and I didn't even know they were coming. I mean, it was like, I just felt an incredible vibe. The school, the fans that would come out, my friends on campus that would be like, hey, like good game, man. Like we're looking forward to next Friday. I just felt like a kind of different community aspect that you don't get at these cutthroat competitive clubs like I was at. Um, and it just made me like so excited and like, I just wanted to perform well for everyone around me. Sounds more of a social thing to some degree, which is what we hear about when kids talk about high school soccer, frankly, compared to, to club. I mean, that seems like yeah. one of the biggest things you enjoyed. I mean, I think for sure, like, you know, the team did kind of feel like in some ways, like a brotherhood as far as people really supporting each other. So to be able to perform as like a cohesive unit where guys don't necessarily have ulterior motivations as far as like at a cutthroat club in Europe, like guys are trying to perform for the team. Sure. But like, they're also performing for the next transfer, their next salary, their next contract, trying to earn as much money as they can until retirement, um, do as well as they can for their families. So there's different motivations there than in the college game where you feel like, yeah, man, I mean, like we're all trying to do really well together individually. Sure. But like we're doing this for the school. We're doing for this, this for the team, for our families, for our friends, for everyone around, for, for, the, for each other. What are your aspirations at the moment i mean i don't want to put you on the hot seat too too much but but what is it that you're trying to look at long term or maybe rather short term even like yeah i mean i definitely go day to day especially now with so much uncertainty about the future i think covid is exposing like already psychologically we know it's better to not focus long term as far as like it can be detrimental to your day-to-day um, routine i feel like now all i want to do is like wake up every day and feel like i spend my time really well and I just like spend every day trying to get a little closer to that goal. And wherever I end up, I want to feel like completely content with the process rather than the outcome. Because the thing with soccer is like, you can't control it. You know, like I would do everything right and have terrible games. I would do nothing right and have the best game ever. You have to try it as a player, especially like if you're trying to compete at an elite level and be a pro, you have to try to separate that outcome with the process. Because the only thing you can be content with, the only thing you can hold on to is, is the day to day. And that will bring you to, to the outcome, hopefully. But if it doesn't happen, if you tear your ACL, if you, you know, never get there because you're not good enough, like you want to be proud looking back on what you did rather than how it ended. So that's something that I work a lot with, with this guy, Mark Sagal. Shout out, Mark. This um, psychologist, sports psychologist is fantastic. Just trying to reframe the idea of long-term success as like, I just do whatever I can day to day and, and we'll see. But certainly I have my goals as far as next year with the team. I'm hoping we have a season and, you know, I want to really push forward. Like I want to try to stay healthy all season. I want to be really proud of how professional I am, my mindset, um, my recovery. I got injured in the fall. Like I tore my hamstring, which kept me out of three of the most important games, UVA wake games included. So I want to make sure I'm healthy and I just do everything I can now to work on areas of weakness. Like I'm doing a lot of yoga, a lot of stretching cars as far as mobility and just like anything that I can work on now that will bring me 
better results in the season, like now is the time. So next year, I got to say, I want 10 goals, 10 assists, and I want to go really far. I mean, like, to be honest, I want to win. Do you have those aspirations still to go back to Europe one day? I mean, it's, it's yeah. the, it's, it's the tension to some degree, maybe tension is not the right word, but you got a taste of it. And then you come back. How do you describe that mindset? And you were mentioning trying to think too, too long term, but it's the natural question. Yeah, no, I mean, 100%, I want to be a pro. Like, I'm convinced I'm going to be a pro, and I hope, like, the process will take me there. I don't know when it will happen, but, or where. Like, I'm, I've always been interested in Europe. Certainly, like, the taste that I got made me want it even more. We'll see. I mean, I, like, right now, I'm just 100% focused on BC, and whatever kind of options have come up this year or will come up, domestic or international, like, I'll look at them, but right now, it's, like, full speed ahead this season with BC, have a great season together, and then we'll see. Obviously, a lot of excitement and momentum with with Bob coming into the head coaching role after Ed Kelly as well. I mean, I've been able to connect with Bob a bunch of times and seems like he's a, a player's first coach that you guys really love playing for as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all excited about Bob and Frankie. Um, and I think they're, they hold the same kind of ambition as me. Like, I don't think BC, there's no reason why BC shouldn't be the top program in the country in four years. Like, that should be the goal. Like, there's no... You know, the, the thing that annoys me more than anything is people that don't think that you can be great. No, like, let's have ambition. Like, there's nothing that should hold back BC. So I'm excited about kind of being, like, at the beginning of that new wave and trying to be one of the young young guys in that core to drive it forward. And I'm trying to, like, really be a leader on the team and push other people. But I think in general, we're so excited. As we've kind of worked through your pathway and your journey, I wanted to kind of take a moment to reflect as well about really just your advice in a bigger picture sense to kids who might be considering a similar path. Not everyone's going to have the talent level, the identification, et cetera. It's something that I know you don't take for granted by any means. What do you feel is a broader message towards these players, these families might be weighing that path that resembles the one you've taken? It's a hard question. I think my main advice would be kind of to work really hard and try to be really content with what you do every day, wherever you are. So when I was a kid, like I live in Worthington, I was just pretty content, like working on my technical skills by banging the ball against the barn until my parents told me I couldn't anymore, you know? So like whatever you can do that makes you feel like you're working towards something, I think that's the best advice I could give. But as far as the actual pathway, my advice would probably be to, to do your own thing, like to believe in what you want to do. And no one will be able to follow my exact path because it's so crazy. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't even recommend it. Like everyone should have their own path. And what I, my advice as far as pathways is like, feel out what you think is best for you as a person and player. For me, it was going to Europe early. Um, I feel like so grateful as far as like, I speak Spanish now. I had that amazing experience in Croatia. I speak some Polish. I, was, I experienced a lot of different styles of play, a lot of different personal growth as far as like how hard that was for me um, living there. So I think going to Europe is fantastic. For the right person, it might be a great growing experience, but you have to be ready for how hard it might be, how many obstacles, how much you might want to give up. I mean, I was close at a lot of different stages. Like I don't even really talk about how um, hard it was sometimes. My advice would be like, do, do what you think is best and follow through because if you do what you think is best and even if it doesn't work out, I think you'll never feel resentful towards someone else for having made that decision for you. So do what you want and follow through. You'll see like, as long as it's your plan and you do it to the best of your abilities, I don't think you'll, 
ever have regrets. And I think that's the way I feel like I think I took a lot of different turns that might have that people were really against and people couldn't understand like, oh, why would he leave the revs and go to Spain? In Spain, it was really hard. I, I could barely, I didn't really play. I was just studying um, because I couldn't get registered. Um, why go to Croatia? Well, like then I gone and Kepcha was gone and all of a sudden no one really wanted me, you know? And then I went to Poland and like, why Poland? It's the most random place ever. But I never had a regret because I felt like I had followed what I wanted to do and like what I felt was right at each moment and tried to be like really dedicated to each of those choices and try to make it work no matter how hard each situation was. So that's my advice. It's long winded, but <laughs> that's my advice. Yeah. And I think the one part that really spoke to me as you're walking through that, that framework of it all is that, yeah, you just have to trust that what you're doing is something you're truly confident in and feel assured that you're making it for your own right reasons and trusting in yourself as an individual. Because I mean, you and I both know this nowadays in a youth soccer landscape, there's going to be a lot of people who might be chirping in your ears saying, do this, do that, do this. Like there's a lot of choices in the environment that you left three, four years ago is very different then versus now. And the things will always evolve. No, hundred percent. I mean, like you're exactly right. Like the number of people that thought that I was screwing up my career or my life, impossible to count, you know? But I always felt like I was doing what I felt was right. And I think looking back on it, I'm like so, I feel like so grateful to be, I mean, I had a lot of support, but I feel so grateful to be able to say like, I did it my way and I feel like I arrived where I wanted to be and where I should be now. And it was just like an amazing journey. Like and I met so many amazing people um, and regardless of how hard it might've been at some stages, it was always my journey. And I think that's what makes it special is like, make it your own and make it feel right to you. And you won't, you won't feel any regrets. Uh, I just want to say, Amos, thank you very, very much for coming on to, to tell your story. I to say personally, I hope your story still has many more chapters still to be written in it. Cause it's exciting to see where it's going. Yeah, man, me too. No, I really appreciate it. I just want to say, yeah, thank you. Like all the people that have been with me through it all, my family in particular, shout out them. I would say to any young player, like, try to recognize like who's there for you and especially your family. Like they do a lot, um, especially in the U S there's a lot of driving to training. So um, that's what I would leave people with is like, remember who's there and who's supporting you and try to be grateful to them. Hey everyone. If you're just discovering New England soccer journal now through our podcast, be sure to check us out online at any where you'll find daily content on the New England soccer scene with in-depth coverage on preps, the youth game, college soccer, commitments, the pros, and more. Right now, you can get an all-access plan, which includes unlimited access to our daily website, plus every issue of our print magazine, delivered straight to your home, office, or dorm for only $74.99 per year. It's simple. Just log on to anysoccerjournal.com and click on the subscribe button to find the subscription that's right for you and get into the game. Before returning with John Moody, we're heading around the pitch with three areas to track. To start off, the Girls Academy League is here, and four clubs from New England have joined the Northeast Conference. Check out more at our website, anysoccerjournal.com, for more on what this means for NEFC, Oakwood, Seacoast United, and South Shore Select. Then, USL League 2 has canceled its entire summer season, and that's bound to have big implications on the college season next fall. At our website, we caught up with some of the region's top D1 players to explore that very topic. But in good news, MLS and USL clubs are both now allowed to have individual training sessions back at their respective complexes. The Revolution, Hartford Athletic, USL League 1 Outfit, Revolution 2 don't appear to be doing that quite yet, but there's more on the horizon. 
And another highlight is former Oakwood girls player Ellie Jean just signed overseas with PSV Eindhoven, a Champions League club in Holland. We also caught up with her for a pretty in-depth interview online at our website, nedsoccerjournal.com, so check that out. And lastly, the college commit world keeps on moving. Two of Beachside's top class of 2021 players have their next steps sorted out, and the Revolution Academy has its entire slate out now. If you have any other updates for boys or girls, you can reach us at commits at anysoccerjournal.com with an email that has more information. Hey, everybody. We are here with John Moody, a figure in the prep school space, really helped raise Berkshire from a program that was strong, but then reached it to entirely new heights with a lot of names that are now in the professional world. And post that came into BlackRock, built this club really from the ground up into something that is a huge force in the club soccer world, prep school soccer world. Now with residential academies at Northwood and Lake Placid, high mowing in New Hampshire, uh, they're doing some really innovative stuff. Thanks for coming on, John. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, happy to be here. And one of the ways, or one of the places I wanted to start, of course, was with this residential model. It comes in the backdrop and kind of the context of a changing soccer landscape that we're all experiencing with the absence or rather termination of the development academy and a 10-month model there. But it's something conversely that you guys have been doing in a different way through kind of blending an academic approach with the soccer one. But before diving into those X's and O's and deeper details, where did the inspiration for this whole idea come from in the first place? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's an idea, I guess, that evolved during certainly my time at Berkshire. And as the program grew in the recruitment efforts, we were attracting players who were looking for more soccer than a standard prep school season would allow. And so we started to try to find ways to help them develop um, and due to the you know, various league restrictions, there were certain challenges that we had to work within. But ultimately, it was, it was about trying to provide uh, more experiences for players to develop, to, to showcase, to further their you know, recruitment process. Um, so at Berkshire, there just really wasn't much around. And we had players who wanted to play. As someone had recruited those players in, I felt obligated to try to provide them with some pathways to continue. And it really started there. The, my thinking around the model has evolved over time. And in the beginning, it was really Sunday soccer. And it was, you know, we, we grouped together players from Berkshire, a few other schools. And for them, it seemed to be something that really helped, it provided them with a lot of enjoyment and, and you know, put smiles on their faces, the opportunity just to play once a week in the off season. What kind of sparked that step from being the traditional kind of own path in the club world to full, full blown residential where kids from all over the world, all over the country are coming together to these individual schools? Yeah, sure. So as, as that concept at Berkshire um, began to grow in terms of an off-season offering for, for BlackRock, for, for students to participate in BlackRock, the demand grew. And in that, um, we, we grew out our, what we called our prep academy. When I left Berkshire, started working with 10 schools. And then the next year, it was 40 schools who were participating in BlackRock. And in doing that for two years, I realized that the limited touch points we were able to have, even on our, you know, with our, our greatest efforts on, on our part and that of the students to, to train and get together and practice and play was just very difficult 
um, based on the travel logistics, the various schedules the students had at their schools. And for, for me as a, you know, I guess program director, I found it difficult to really impact the players in the way that, you know, I wanted to with regard to their development as players as in a holistic way as student athletes. So by being outside of the prep school bubble, running this program, I was able to kind of look back at it and kind of look at the best aspects of what prep school provided. And then at the same time, as I delved into sort of club soccer, which we did in our first year through the NPL, start to understand the club systems better. And, you know, was fully aware of the Development Academy, you know, the 10-month model and looking at, you know, academies throughout the globe that operate on a, you know, really a year-round basis. It, it certainly made sense that the more players can um, train and develop and be fully immersed in a program, the better the opportunity it is as a program director to impact their journey, develop them, help them achieve their goals, what was going to be greater. And so it seemed to me that uh, the idea of a, a model where we could work with players year-round on a day-to-day basis in a very holistic way was going to be the solution to sort of what I was hoping to do on a unique player development journey. And I, I looked at sort of what I saw in the club side that made sense and then looked at what I saw in the prep school side that made sense and figured that to try to wed the two would create perhaps the best outcomes because sporting schools have so much to offer students, but you are still restricted in so many ways by how much you could work with a player to develop them. And I know for a lot of prep school coaches, that's one of the greatest frustrations. And, you know, it's a, it's, it is what the, tradition of the New England prep schools are is to play multiple sports and activities. And I was a three sport athlete myself and really value the experiences you learn by playing other sports. But I will say that in terms of soccer development and and helping players reach the, their best potential, the, the need to work with players on a more sustained basis is fairly obvious. And so that's where the idea of the residential came in was, could we take the best of what prep schools have to offer and the best of what year-round academy programs have to offer, put them together in a way that really emphasizes their academic development, their, let's call it their, um, well, certainly their soccer development, but then also some of the other intangibles that come through boarding schools, just in terms of their character, citizenship, leadership qualities, all of the things that are kind of nurtured in a boarding school. That was the idea, you know, in terms of how the evolution of the residential academy came to be. Is there one example where it might be hard to pick one that you could highlight of a kid who maybe came through, I think, one of these residential programs and seeing the transformation of them? To speak specifically to how the residential academy model is evolving here, we're in our second year at Northwood and our first year at High Mowing. Um, take, for example, um, you know, the, the two Rodriguez brothers, Mateo and Lucas, I came into contact with them. Their father went to Berkshire School, and they're, they're from Mexico. He was interested but also concerned about the limitations of the soccer opportunity for his two boys in that sort of a program and really wanted more. And it just happened to coincide around the time we were looking at this new step at Northwood. So they were uh, might have been even the first two to sign on to the Northwood BlackRock residential program, you know, the, both boys were very bright, good students, tremendous players. And I'm quite sure would have had options at any of the 
really good, you know, boarding schools out there offering top academics in soccer, but they really wanted that year round experience. And so they've been part of our first two years here. And I think really exemplify the sort of kids that we're looking to identify and bring in. We're very good students, very responsible and good players. But what I saw with them, and, and I would say probably all of, almost all of the players I've worked with over the last 20 years, is that they came in really seeing themselves as soccer players who do school well, and that's good. But that was sort of somewhat of a limitation on who they, their, you know, their, their full identity and the potential they had beyond the field, you know, and, and to define themselves in different ways. And so one of our goals, and I think Lucas and Mateo have really come to understand that and exemplify it, is to broaden the scope of how they see themselves as student-athletes, not just being a responsible student and a very good player, but to really find ways to dig into all of the offerings inside of the, the boarding school, because boarding schools have so much to offer. And so Lucas and Mateo have been here, contributed so much. Mateo is one of our senior captains, and he's going to Cornell next year. And then Lucas is also just recently committed to Colgate University. So they'll be just, a, I think, inside two hours from one another, which makes them both quite happy. But they're really part of, I would say, the way they were able to land in such good universities. Obviously, there's soccer development and play, but good grades are necessary. But both of these guys have found ways to really involve themselves in the life of the school. Teo is the head of our the Blue Key, which is the student leadership around admissions. And Lucas was sitting on a, a, the headmaster's committee and overseeing a lot of important decisions here on campus. And those are the sorts of things we hope through our residential academy to, to provide students with. It's not just the soccer, which is great. Ten months of training as a coach is something every coach wants, at least, you know, and the ability to compete on a year-round basis. But then all of those options that not every student athlete takes advantage of in a school that I think really define their experience. And when I look at the players who have come through, whether it be early inception here at the Black Rock Academy at Northwood or High Mowing, those are the moments that make me most happy. When I see kids really giving themselves up to the school and the process and really digging in and discovering more about themselves. And I, I believe in a way, all of those experiences translate to better outcomes on the field. But our goal is to create a unique model that looks at player development in a different way than most soccer clubs or pro academies, and, and certainly a different way than traditional prep schools, you know, look at uh, sporting development, and to produce a higher percentage of players that achieve those, those dreams, um, but not at the expense of their education or their broader development. So if a student comes through the program, and like we have Anaki Rodriguez, who's at Michigan now, you know, when you look at a player like that, he has the potential to, to play pro, um, as do a lot of our players. But the way they're going to get there is through what, you know, this, this layer of systems that where they are um, really coming to understand themselves in a holistic way, developing the skill sets needed to, to face the challenges that inevitably you face as you go from prep school to college and college to pro, which is a system that will will beat back a lot of players and leave a lot of players frustrated, wanting to quit. And so, you know, through all of these experiences, we're hoping to develop 
you know, players that have the skill sets, the resiliency, the character, the determination, the belief in self. That's our, our hope around this development project. One other part too is when we talk about this 10 month model, a lot of people in New England, they, they view it through the lens oftentimes of the now defunct development Academy, which helped really pioneer and, and bring much of that in. Of course, now we're, we're seeing possibly a, a major league soccer led initiative that will kind of embody that 10 month model as well and take its own kind of form. And did you guys often encounter players who were choosing one or the other? Because yeah, these, these are kids who are, are soccer players and, and they're wanting to be in the best environment that they feel fits their goals and their aspirations. We absolutely did see and, and continue to see players who are looking into different alternatives than what club soccer, whether it be the DA or, or other club models present. I think we're operating in a unique space and it's not for everyone. I tell every kid when I you know, talk with them, when we're recruiting them, that you know, don't just come here to play soccer because that won't work. You know, it's not going to be a good fit for you because we're going to be on you every day about being at your best as a student, as a member of this community. We're going to expect you to hold the door for people, to clear your tray, to say please and thank you, to sit in the front row, to go for extra help. Do all of these things besides being a great soccer player and a committed, coachable player who's humble, hardworking, all of this. But and there's, there's plenty of kids out there who want that side of the soccer but don't necessarily want the emphasis in sort of academics and broader character and, and development, you know, citizenship and all this. So I think that, yeah, we have, and I think that the, the recent news around the DA does make our program perhaps – I think we'll see a, a spike in interest because it's hard to find a place where you can play for 10 months in a very focused environment. One other area too is the 10-month the model and just a bigger picture sense and, and it's scale that we see globally, but perhaps not as much application here in the States um, as we see elsewhere. Do you feel there's an appetite or, or maybe a kind of direction towards this idea, towards this kind of concept here in the States? Or, or is it something that maybe takes a little bit longer to, to take root. Absolutely. I think there's definitely a demand. And I think, you know, you're seeing it, like we alluded to, there's different programs out there throughout the United States that are working with kids, whether it is an IMG or it's a Shattuck St. Mary's or different models that are out there. And I think, you know, the players that want this type of experience are finding us pretty quickly. And the players that didn't really know this was an option are quite excited to find out that it is an option. So I think there's more and more, I'm seeing more and more players interested in what we're doing. And I would say also other programs I'm talking with, there's other schools. Um, there are club coaches, even MLS teams that I've talked with that are interested in what we're doing. So I think there's a, an interest not only on the, I guess you could say the, the student athletes themselves and their families looking for the right fit and more of a sustained focus. But I also think that a lot of people are kind of seeing this pathway of specialization as a growing consideration in prep schools. And even for that matter, as we know, in the college game, you know, where they're looking to have the extended season and, and everybody seems to be pushing in that direction when, if and when the, the pendulum swings and everybody goes to that, I don't know. And that's not really my concern. My concern is pursuing player development, student athlete development in the ways that I would like to, 
that I believe produce the best outcomes. And I'm fortunate, you know, to be working with schools like Northwood School and High Morning School that, you know, have a, a large degree of trust in, in the vision here and are really supportive of what we're doing. But to be able to operate independently, to create our own roadmap for player development is, I think, really exciting and how it will evolve. But we're really enjoying our early evolution in this space and um, have some exciting plans, you know, moving forward. As you mentioned, those, uh, those plans, uh, it's a natural question that comes up for me. Northwood was year one. High mowing was, was year two for this. Do you feel this is a scalable thing? Is this something that could expand beyond these two schools at the moment? Yeah, absolutely scalable. Absolutely. And um, really for us, we're not doing anything. We're not launching any new program next year. We are looking at some, you know, ways to help our USL League 2 program evolve. Um, We want to make sure that program is operating at the highest level. We have some new initiatives there. We're also looking at our current prep academy model and, and how we can tweak that and adjust that to make it, you know, even better for the the players and more compatible with our partner prep schools. So as far as residential programs in development go, we're, we're really focusing now on high mowing in Northwood. Um, I will say there is some strong interest. We, we have received a lot of interest from other schools that are, that are asking and inquiring about what we're doing and interested in being affiliated with our program. But right now we are uh, pretty pretty maxed out, I guess you could say, in terms of the scope of our broader BlackRock programming and really need to and, and want to buckle down and focus on the quality of what we're offering um, rather than, you know, just trying to grow for the sake of growing. But it is scalable. We're seeing that clearly. And, and um, you know, I think that there's a, a broader market and um, interest in what we're doing. And so we will, we will look at that and are indeed day to day assessing different opportunities and um, other ideas. But I feel like right now we need to really learn what we're doing here and kind of master the model, I guess you could say, um, to better serve kids. And as good as things are going here, we have a lot to learn and we'll continue to do so. You know, we get up every day with, you know, asking the question, how can we be better? And there's always ways to improve. And once we feel like our current residential models are, are clicking and operating in the ways we feel satisfied, like we're really, really moving smoothly. I think we can look then at how we build that model out a little bit more. Yeah. And just as we kind of bring it full circle, I wanted to, to toss a little one out of left field towards your way, going way back to the Berkshire days. As this kind of came up, um, the most prominent player undoubtedly has been Jack Harrison, who gave great success in England, playing at Leeds United, Manchester City player, NYCFC, Wake Forest, etc. What's your favorite Jack Harrison story? Yeah, whew, that's a great question and probably a hard one. When I think of all the players um, I've worked with, they're all, you know, let's call it, they're all special to me in one way or another because the relationships we formed were so strong and Jack certainly is there with all of, all of the great ones in my mind. And, um, uh, you know, I couldn't be more happy for him and the success he's found. And, um, you know, if we played a, a good little role in that in his uh, formative years, then I'm happy. Um, but, wow, looking back at, at Jack's time at Berkshire and, and with our early inception of BlackRock, um, there, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, there, there were many things about Jack that um, I think made him unique, you know, in terms of 
um, his appetite to learn and grow. When he got to Berkshire, he came to visit. It's uh, when he came over, he came at 13 years old. He had been accepted to Berkshire. Um, and, you know, just due to his family's financial circumstance, which, you know, was challenging at that time, he had to fly over as an unaccompanied minor. And I picked him up at Logan Airport and had to sign off um, just due to the cost of the airfare for his tickets. You know, he ended up being on campus for, uh, I want to say, at least five or six days. And he stayed at our house, you know, was for my, my son. How old was he then? Uh, about probably three or four. Uh, Jack was this amazing. He, he th- my son thought was very into nights at that time. Jack had a British accent, and I asked Jack to kind of ham up the role of, you know, coming from England and being sort of a knightly young man. And so he played out sort of that that role for my son during those five days. That he was a, you know, a young knight. He knighted my son and all this kind of fun stuff. But just from the minute he arrived, you know, this kid was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. I guess you could say. We went to Faneuil Hall. I gave him his first steak and cheese. He had never heard of that. And he was mesmerized by that. I don't think he ever lost his love of a steak and cheese after that. Came to, came to Berkshire, jumped, jumped into classes. We kept him busy. He was attending classes, participating, trying everything possible. Went mountain biking with our outdoor program. He was like a kid in a candy store because his previous model had been one that really just restricted him, I guess you could say, to pretty much what he defined as school, take the bus to soccer, soccer, back to home, and just keep repeat, repeat, repeat. And even his training with Manchester United Youth Academy, he said, was very, very, um, you know, uh, predictable. He would just drive down the wing and cross the ball, drive down the wing and cross the ball, you know, over and over again. And when he got to Berkshire, not only on the soccer field, but I think in general, he was kind of exposed to just – so many opportunities. And he, to his credit, took advantage of all of those opportunities. He still holds the all-time record for mountain biking at Berkshire. On the, there's a very death-defying, rigorous mountain course on the hillsides of Berkshire, which, honestly, I can't even ride. It's so treacherous. And as a freshman, he broke the existing record, still holds it, and showed no fear and just embraced the opportunity to learn to be this mountain biker. He did the same with squash. He won a New England championship. He did the same with track and field. When, you know, mountain biking was canceled in his senior year, he, he didn't sit around dwelling on that fact. He transitioned to track and field and won a New England championship in the 4x4. You know, a lot of the, the, the great players who have come through our program have had that same mindset, that determination to whatever the situation is, take advantage of it, be like a sponge, absorb all that you can, challenge yourself, go for it, really go for it. And any new environment Jack steps into, and I'd say like a lot of our players, they're going to view it as an opportunity. They're going to have those, you know, he's going to, he's still at this age, I'm sure, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and looking for ways to, to grow and, um, you know, challenge himself. And, and that's why I'm not surprised that each level he's gone to, he's found success. He doesn't shy away from challenge. He embraces it. He relishes it. And it's, it's paying dividends for him. And I, I, you know, I couldn't be happier for him, but he's a yeah, tremendous young man. Just want to say thank you very much, Sean, for coming on and, and, and talking a little bit more about BlackRock and, and all that's there. Of course, some, some changing dynamics in the, in the youth soccer world and uh, big thank you to you. 
Well, thank you, Jonathan, and I appreciate your time and, and interest in our program and um, hope, hope everyone out there in the soccer world is uh, being patient and doing what they can do to stay engaged. Um, I know it's a difficult time. And that's a wrap. I want to thank our guests, Amy Shapiro-Thompson and John Moody, plus all of our listeners. Until next time, I've been your host, Jonathan Siegel, and you're listening to New England Soccer Journal, a Siemens Media Podcast.